Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume, being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their orgs. I'm your host, Tom Hackball, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with George Dobbin, Global Head of Talent Acquisition and Development at Savio. George comes from the world of global, insight-driven, multifaceted technology businesses at the cutting edge of innovation. He's taken that experience into the world of global talent acquisition, where he spent over a decade scaling the people side in a wide range of sectors, across experienced hires, students, and even apprentices. He joined Sabio at a point of seriously rapid growth and three days before the first lockdown as global head of talent acquisition. George, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you, and thanks for having me. No sweat. Thanks, thanks for coming along. I think, look, Super interesting intro and super interesting background. We've got lots to cover today and across a whole kind of range of things. And before we do that, it would be good to just dig a little bit deeper into your background and understand kind of that, you know, we understand where you're at today and, and what your career looks like. But give us that sort of pre-HR and, and the journey into HR form. Yeah, as you might tell, I'm from Northern Ireland originally. I don't know what will give it away. <laughs> then uh, in Scotland, just outside Glasgow, I've got a young daughter who's five. She's called Emma and she's crazy as a box of frogs. That's me personally. Professionally, I got into recruitment, HR over a decade ago. I graduated in a degree subject called virology, which was great at the time. No one knew what it was. Uh, Very pertinent now in today's world. Get a lot of questions on it. I remember going to job interviews, and we can talk about this later as well. And uh, it came to the question, what did you study? Why did you study it? I always said virology, and it was like, Excuse me. Uh, bless you. What did what did you say? So it's a a conversation took place with one of my friends. You want to make loads of money, George. You need to be in recruitment. Or no, sorry. The first friend said sales. He now works for a very global company and makes much more than me and my current friend who remained in the talent acquisition sector. So I started with a consultancy called MBN Solutions. The original kind of. I would call them the, the OGs of data recruitment. They've been about for the best part of, of 20 years now. And, you know, a big shout out to Michael, Michael Young, Pete Doherty, Robin Huggins, legends. Appreciate everything they did for me at the time. So it was more focused on kind of niche tech recruitment, worked with some really cool brands, Channel 4, EMEA, Dunhumby, loads of analytics companies, Pros even in Germany. That gave me a kind of good grounding in the tech sector fast-paced, really quite uh, innovative in the things that they were doing with the clients and quite ahead of the times in terms of recruitment practice, particularly from, you know, the days of a Rolodex, ashtrays on the table, you know, drinking 15 cups of coffee. And some things change, some things don't. So it was a great grounding, great experience, a great learning learning curve. Um, I went on to Capita from that to work on a, a project I was really proud on, RPP, which was the recruitment partner project for the British Army. Huge contract for Capita, really complex. The British Army is one of the most fantastic and complicated organizations I've ever worked with. But again, huge learning experience, a de- totally different take from the tech sector. It really kind of Im- improved my stakeholder engagement and how you, you pitch something at the right level. You manage stakeholders uh, to get the right result in a collaborative way. It was very collaborative. And Kath Possumay, who was our CEO at the time, she's now at Amazon, was phenomenal in doing that as well. That led me into a role at CGI. Again, massive, huge machine, 74 at the time, thousand people globally. Incredible business. 
again, slightly different pace, much more in the detail, looking at it from a, it was a much more senior role for me at the time, and looking at it from a, I suppose, a data-driven point of view and using the experience I learned at MBN and that analytics side to drive recruitment. And I think it was the first time that everything came together from my experiences. Sabio came along, pinged me a message um, at the right time, presented a fantastic opportunity. There were about 400 people at the time. My current boss, Michelle, had a chat with her and, and it was just a fantastic opportunity for me. The rest is kind of history, really, Tom. Been with the business now for, for two years. Did you know when you joined Sabio that it, the journey you would go on over the next two years would look like it has? Like, did you expect the level of growth you've seen and so on and so forth? I think it was at a time where I, so I joined three days before lockdown, as you mentioned in the intro. So I remember having a meeting with my current manager and some of the exec. And the, the question was posed, you know, what, what impact do you think coronavirus will have? And at the time, we, we had no idea. I suppose the first reactionary thing I did looking at the, the recruitment we had on was, and it was the tactical time to do in a lot of business that we stopped recruitment. We looked at everything across the board, where people were spending money, why we were spending that money. Um, we had a salary sacrifice. It was, from a personal point of view, it was pretty apprehensive in terms of joining a new business. I've come from quite a secure business globally that, that's you know very profitable and in a good place. Fast forward a month later, we were fully recruiting again. Fast forward a year later, we recruited over 200 people organically. You know, the acquisition journey had begun at that point, and I'll talk about that in a bit. It just really went from strength to strength, and there was no predicting the growth and the journey that we went on, but if I had a crystal ball and I had predicted that, it would have been fantastic. I would have been all for it then as well. I think from our point of view now, looking back, COVID as, as a situation globally, has changed the market forever, but it accelerated our business at a time where we were already going at the pace of a, a kind of 100 knots. So it was it's fantastic. It continues to be that kind of innovation that we've developed at Savio through technology and best of breed products. It just continues. The journey keeps going on, Tom. No, sure. Look, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you're right to identify that COVID for a lot of people has been significantly disruptive, but Sounds like for Sabio, it's kind of been lighting fuel under the fire a little bit and actually accelerating what you guys are already doing. I think we've had much the same experience, somewhat unsurprisingly here, selling talent acquisition software in a market that's never been so fragmented, right? So interesting that we can kind of identify the pros and the cons of that environmental change. I think before we move on to Sabio and, and touch on some of the initiatives you guys are running there and what that looks like, I think what you've talked about through your introduction is like, to my mind, like a very diverse set of perspectives, right? You've been an agency, you've been in-house, you've been at big, you've been at small, you've been on consultancy things, you've done fast growth, you've done slower growth, you've done conservative, you've got a background in blood virology. Like, there's a lot of difference, perhaps, versus your sort of stock token recruiter with their traditional background. Like, what perspective do you think that's given you, and, and sort of what unique view do you think you've got on the market as a result of that? It is an interesting background, particularly some of the clients I've worked with. They've varied from complex organizations like the Army with u- unique recruitment challenges. You know, the, the, one of the biggest blockers was the medical process, for example, which is something out of people's control and out of a, a recruitment professional's control. But other businesses, you know, like MBM, where the pace of the sector and the, the subject matter expertise and being credible in that sector was really key. I think I've probably got quite a balanced perspective from the market in terms of I'm willing to kind of get down to the granular detail and get my hands dirty when I need to. But I suppose it's given me the view I'm having more strategic conversations that 
that can relate to the people on the ground that are implementing and, and doing that. And, and maybe, you know, my team might correct me uh, on this, maybe kind of foresee some of the challenges that they will have and work more collaboratively with them to solve those problems. And, you know, I kind of always, it's like always solutions, not problems. It's just something that we kind of say in our, our scrum meetings in the morning. So, yeah, it's given me a, a probably quite a, a measured approach on, on different sectors, but it is, and I don't know what you think at the moment, Tom, from your point of view, but it is a crazy market at the moment. It's extremely buoyant. It's moving, moving at pace. Everything's moving at pace, I feel. Yeah, look, the market, from my perspective, is as crazy as it's ever been, right? And I think, again, there's pros and cons for that. I think the one thing I'd say is that I feel like it's been a bit of a leveler over the past couple of years. And what I mean by that is historically, you saw these very sort of well-entrenched organizations with deep pockets and lots of people and experience that could sort of play a very different game from your sort of newcomers, your challenges, your new entrants into the space. I, like I think what COVID has done and the sort of general shift in talent dynamics and things like that, is, it has been that level I was just talking about. And it's allowed newcomers or less established players with slightly less deep pockets to play a very similar game or in fact a, a very different game that all of a sudden works and makes sense in this marketplace that wouldn't have done before. And so I think you're seeing talent sort of take a different perspective on the opportunities available to them. And you're looking at employers taking again a very different perspective as to how they should tackle that and i think that's actually a really positive thing i just think it's kind of knocked a few people out of kilter and there's a bit of adaption that needs to happen that hasn't quite got there yet i think we're going to spend a bunch of time over the next sort of half an hour or so touching on a bunch of things you've been working on from sort of academies to like what your team looks like to how that works to how you handle such rapid growth in such a sort of well a evolving market and be in such a short time frame I think to help us understand some of the context behind all of that, can you just give us a bit of background as to Sabio as a business? Sort of, what do they do? Where are they today? And what's the past couple of years of growth look like for you? Yeah, so roughly two decades ago, in about 1998, the business kind of was formed with the kind of the mantra to help businesses connect to their customers. We were historically a kind of contact center systems integrator. Fast forward to present day, we are truly a digital CX transformation business, uh, technology agnostic multi-vendor across kind of 65 countries in the world. The likes of the, the kind of the clients that we work with and, and deal with are brand name clients on a on a global scale. Sainsbury's um, and M&S in the, in the retail sector. What we found was, again, that catalyst was contact center volume went up 400% in the first lockdown. People like myself were ringing up, uh, trying to remember my password for the Sainsbury's app. But we deployed a product through one of the acquisitions uh, developed that we had, intelligently handled the calls. And again, the technical guys will probably absolutely slaughter me for this, but intelligently handled the calls. The uh, vulnerable people get through to the contact center and they got their requests dealt with. Sainsbury's are happy, we're happy, and we've built on that success globally. As I mentioned, one of the acquisitions, we've had, I think now it's 13 acquisitions across the past few years. So. And that, that has been globally. That's taken us into South Africa, India. We're already in kind of Spain, France, Netherlands, Singapore, Malaysia, and APAC, uh, the UK and Scotland, where I'm based. And I kind of always caveat it with it's, it's all the, the destinations you would want to go on a long weekend to. We've got an office presence. So the business is, is now in our market and in our sector. You know, we were recognized on the HSBC 2021 Sunday Times kind of fast track 200 list. In that period, we went from 400 to 1200, continuing to grow, continuing to recruit and acquire talent um, at pace. 
and, and you know, as you said, we'll talk about the academy and, and how we intend to future-proof that system going forward and, and galvanize the, the kind of the talent machine. That is kind of fairly crazy, right? Like not just growth organically, but that growth through M&A and that growth in such a disparate range of locations and kind of different cultures, different candidate expectations and so on. I'm keen to dig into that a bit more. I think one of the things I'd love to understand and I think would be helpful more generally is what is the makeup of your HR team? So like how many people are in the team and how is that team structured and how are those sort of responsibilities divided up? Yeah, so globally, we've got about 19 people on the team at the moment. That's kind of split into two areas, the people focused side of the team, people would describe classically as HR and the talent side of the team, uh, the recruitment side. So we report into Michelle Wall, our chief people officer. It's broken down into, and from my mind, the way I suppose I've structured my side of the team would be to focus on the kind of the, the key areas in geography, first of all, and then expertise. So everything from workforce planning to EVP, employee value proposition, the social side, the technology side, the onboarding experience. And then I suppose what underpins everything, Tom, is, is that kind of data analytics. It is data driven. So, you know, at the moment we've got about three talent acquisition managers. I say about, we do have three talent acquisition managers, coordinators in there. They're picking up that kind of keeping the, the wheels turning and, and the administrative side. I brought in an EVP manager at the time, Sarah, who Again, testament to the business, the skill of growth and being a meritoric organization. Within six months, Sarah delivered some key projects. We promoted her to the head of EVP. She's now got an engagement partner, an employee engagement partner, which again buys into that overall strategy of listening to the employees and driving that forward. We've got an intern on that team, which is again driving forward that kind of youth element and, and given opportunity. And on the people side, we've got kind of the, the true business partners, five business partners, a people operations manager, or sorry, a head of people operations and a people operations manager in there too. So I think the balance and the structure of the team is kind of came together by design rather than the default. Again, something we would probably look at in the future would be, and I don't know, again, if from clients you've spoken to, if it's becoming more common in the HR teams, it is a kind of a true HR data analytics specialist or a or an HR data analyst, I think there's more roles out there at the moment that are that are entirely focused on that expertise in data. I don't know what if, if you're seeing that with your clients as well. Yeah, we are. And I think that was one of the things I was actually going to ask you. I thought it was super interesting as you were going through that sort of structure breakdown that you kept coming back to this notion of data analytics being really important to your, I don't know, we call it hiring criteria, team dynamics, whatever. I think to answer your question, to follow up with one of my, I think, yeah, we are definitely seeing a lot more of that type of role. I think we're seeing a lot more dedicated folks being hired into those roles and talent operations or people operations becoming more of a data center and like looking at the recruitment stack and looking at the HR stack in general to make sure that they've got, well, to simplify the ease at which they're moving data around their entire kind of HR lifecycle from recruitment and post so that they can actually start learning from that data and, and making better decisions as a result. So yeah, we're seeing dedicated hires being made in that space. I think we're also seeing a lot of teams invest a great deal of time and energy trying to upskill I guess the, I'm going to call it data literacy, but like the level of sort of skill and appetite for data and analytics amongst their existing HR team. And I think that was something I was interested in understanding a bit more from your team. How have you thought about that? Is it, have you had any pushback or have you had any struggles kind of taking your team on that journey? Have you been looking for people when recruiting that specifically have experience in data and analytics already? How have you framed that? 
Yeah, so I suppose, and again, it goes back nearly 10 years from looking at the clients I worked with then and the demands. And I worked with Centriga and British Gas in the Hive area of that business. And, you know, at the time, it was like weird, wonderful concepts of having a smart meter. So the smart meter would tell Hive, or the Hive and the smart meter would tell British Gas loads of insightful things about how people use electricity and, and they use their appliances. And then they came up with tariffs at the time to offset some of the times that they weren't using it. So if you put your washing machine on after 12 o'clock at night, probably not the best idea if you live in a flat block, but you got a better rate. And all of these kind of scenarios were, were talked about at the time. I find that really profound at the time because it gives the insight, give you the, the decision-making power to actually then impact something in a better way, or in this case, mega saving financially, which was amazing. So that kind of theme stuck with me through my career to this day. So when I'm looking for your perspective recruits into my team or into the business, data is always a question I always ask, you know, how data savvy you are, what does data mean to you? And I suppose, again, kind of by design, not just sheer chance, the team have come in with a mind, with data in mind, because we talk about it on our scrum meeting, we use the insights tab on pinpoint it's our daily kind of bible it's it's what drives the conversations and drives the, that partner with the business and the talent side you know it's it's always been a consideration and i suppose to answer your question it's it's like i do look for it the adoption of the talent with the current critical mass was a no-brainer because it was about demonstrating roi for them and stakeholders and in the daily team so by having a dashboard where you can see all your roles but then you can go to the level deeper see how many interviews, see how many candidates, you can work out conversions, you can work out your time. And I've always kind of been a, a great believer in, I'll keep this PC, I'll tell you what my old head of business development, Rob, used to say to me off, offline, but if you're sitting on your sofa in your dressing gown and you can still do your job, I don't care if you're standing on your head, you're wearing a funny hat, it's about the delivery element. So, and data in a remote world, for me, and, and just my opinion, I don't know, I'd like to know yours, Tom, it enables that kind of touch point without being, again, it's it's not a tool to, to bash someone over the head with and KPIs we can talk about. But again, KPIs are a measure of activity, but sometimes I think they stifle that creativity in the process. I don't know what you think about it. Completely agree, to be honest. I think you're right. Like that point you make about trust and that point you make about not particularly caring where somebody is as long as they're doing a job and things like that. I think data is an incredibly important part of that narrative, right? I think we look at our own business and again, we're a small forward thinking technology startup, right? Like obviously we unsurprisingly fall into one side of this camp, but we work with a really broad range of industries and sectors and different levels of sort of position on that adoption curve, if you will, right? And I think that the one constant is that Different teams often have very different experiences. Like I'll give you an example. So sales, right? Like it's very easy in theory to measure the efficacy of a salesperson because they have a number or a quota or a target that they're supposed to be hitting. And if they hit that, they are performing well. If they do not hit that, they are underperforming. It is quite binary and, and there's a lot more to it than that, having done sales myself. But like it is pretty simple. It's very easy to manage and doesn't matter where that person is or what they're doing or how they do it. If they hit the number, they're performing and they're, they're sort of economically justified. If you look at something like engineering, whilst there's a heck of a lot of ways you can track the performance of an engineering function and you can look at sprint points and you can look at output, features shipped and hopefully not lines of code. But 
you get the gist of it. There's lots of different metrics you can use to manage that, but it's a lot more subjective. It's a lot harder to pin down. There's a lot more variance. And so I find it's much easier to, well, for some organizations at least, to trust a salesperson to go out and do their thing independently because they can look at a number at the end of the month, which is filled by data, versus that same organization may look at something a lot more subjective like design or engineering or product in a very different light, right? So I think getting the right data and having education within the business about how to interpret and leverage that data is very important as an enabler for a lot of these other kind of cultural shifts that you're talking about. So I, I think we're very aligned in that regard. Data for me always is a talking point and it is an insight. You want to glean an insight from data and, and I suppose the more data you have that's organized in a better fashion, the better insight you get, the better conversation point you can have. You know, as I said, it's a, it's a daily conversation for my team and the wider team that's validated. It's not opinion based. It's, it's, you know, if the data is good data, then you can have a, have a, an intelligent conversation based on it. I think like we've talked a fair bit about your team and, and, and sometimes this becomes a bit of a controversial question, but like, how are you leveraging agencies if at all? Right. I think we've seen this like real shift from organizations especially in the uk market where which is sort of our home territory if you will where you know organizations often very heavily relied on third-party recruiters rpo agencies and you'd see sort of 60 70 sometimes even 100 percent of their inbound talent coming from agencies how do you think about the agency model as complementary or not to your own team agency is not a bad word it is in finance but it's not it's not across the, the kind of the wider business and you know i say that in jest Agencies do have a, a place in the talent management lifecycle. I see them as true partners to the business and the relationships we've got. It's calculated in terms of the PSL has been put in place. They complement each other rather than conflict with each other. And going back to kind of my agency days, what I found was it was a race for talent. It was always the first person to get that person in the niche market, get their CV across. It was that high street kind of mentality of you know i'm going to be first the first person is going to win it's going to it's a race the kind of the recruitment life cycle shouldn't be a race for many reasons you know we can talk about kpis again the quality of hire retention all these things that come into it as well but having a true partner that reflects and complements your business in the external world and the marketplace which we're in as well we're looking in the same place for the same kind of niche talent to have it validated by an external partner is is brilliant, and to have that kind of good word spread, it's it's free advertising really. It's something that I think businesses work really hard on pushing agencies away. The better relationships you have with them, you can turn up and turn up and off when you need to augment your processes internally. But it, you know it shouldn't be seen as a dirty word or an expense that you shouldn't spend, and. You mentioned kind of uh, some stats. Roughly about 20% of our hires year to date come from agency. Again, on the internal redeployment side of things, it's about 15%. We're sitting at 10% referrals at the minute, which I'd like to increase. We just launched a new referral program, Savio Connections. 55% of the hires year to date are coming directly through the talent acquisition team. Oh, look, that makes sense. And I think good to hear somebody with such a level and balanced view on the role that agencies play in the market and how you can leverage them effectively. I think I want to dig into the academy. But before we do that, and asking this question somewhat loaded, because I know you guys are strong here, like DE&I is a huge topic for everybody. It has been for quite some time. I think hopefully that doesn't change. It's very high on the agenda at the moment. What are you guys doing from a DEI perspective? What initiatives do you have? What have you seen kind of go well? And maybe what's not gone so well? Yeah, so I think... 
really what kicked it all off for us was you can buy me a beer later. It was the introduction of Pinpoint, uh, Tom. It was, again, it comes back to that data point. Um, it was the first time that we were able to see at the front end who was applying, the range, the ethnicity, what they were looking for. It gave us the upfront point of who were we attracting in the business. And, you know, we're doing a lot of work at the moment to see what, you know, what retains people in the organization as well through Savio Life, which I'll talk about in a minute. That was the kind of the catalyst to really start. Where are we? Current state. Where do we want to get to? And I think having that honesty and authenticity to turn around and say, we are here with our DE&I. It's just what needs to happen, that transparency. And we all aspire to be this kind of multicultural, diverse business where everyone has it. When you have 13 acquisitions come together globally, you naturally get that diversity and inclusion. Sorry, you naturally get that diversity, but you don't necessarily get that inclusion. And we've worked really hard. We had a rebrand on the 1st of September uh, last year. That was a product of numerous workshops from our EVP team to pull together all the reasons why people want to join Savio. As an acquisition, you didn't choose to join Savio. You chose to join the acquisition. But through the workshops, we gleaned from those the reasons why Savio is applicable and the values, and we redefined the values in that. That was a phenomenal piece of work to bring that inclusivity together and that diverse nature. But on a kind of business as usual, Savio Life's our forum. It does what it says in the tin. It's everything about being at Savio as a business. Last week, it was International Transgender Day of uh, Visibility. That tied in really nicely with launching our transgender equality policy. We've got learning with uh, without limits sessions that are on a monthly basis that you know raise hot topics in the organization, but hot topics in the market as well. There's huge emphasis on on kind of ESG at the moment, environmental social governance. And, you know some of the projects going on. We've partnered with Ecology, which is a platform really kind of focused on climate change. So they facilitate funding and offset the carbon projects by planting trees around the world. And their kind of main mission is to reduce 50% of global CO2. CO2 emissions by 2040. So that's something that it's after my own heart. It's looking after the environment, the future for for our kids. And it's something that now is just, it's baked into business as usual. And talking points through Savio Life, there's a forum, it's raised on a on a regular basis. And there's a, a vehicle for employees to come and raise issues to do with uh, DE&I. But also, I think, to celebrate success and celebrate the, the cool things that we have done. You know, I've watched this space. There's lots more exciting things that are coming from Sabio, from the EV, the EVP team and the ESG projects that are happening. It's it's really, really cool stuff. That's awesome. Look, there sounds like there's a lot for others to take away from that and stuff we can certainly be learning from here at Pinpoint as well. I think one of the things you've sort of, you've kept sort of subtly and sometimes not so subtly referenced as you've been talking about Sabio and your journey and the things you're doing is this notion of like the academy, right? Whether it's dropping in an intern that's doing something here or thinking about that pipeline for the future. You know, the business isn't small now and you're growing super, super quickly. So it makes sense for you to be thinking about that sort of early in career pipeline and things like that. Can you kind of walk us through what you're doing in that arena and where you're seeing value from that? Before I forget, I need to plug our new Savio merchandise store just internally. Savio chili bottle mugs, t-shirts, hoodies. Get one. You'll get one for your birthday this year, Tom. Don't worry. You're, you're on the list. It's launched this week as well. So 
the marketing team, massive thank you to those guys. It's just, it's cool. Again, cool quality products that are ethically sourced. They're sustainable down to the, you know, the ink used in the t-shirts, the embroidery, everything that buys into that overall kind of vision and, and view on ESG. Everything has got to be ethical. It's got to be socially sustainable. So I would be silly not to plug that as part of the options that are happening at the moment. So I suppose I'm going to put this back to you, Tom, and ask you what your first job was. And you know, we talked about my background and how, how I got into talent acquisition, driven solely by money at the time, maybe 10 years ago, which was wrong in my eyes. And I have this discussion with my friend who recommended recruitment to me as well. I'd ask you two, two parts to this question. What was your first job? And what was your most random job? Good questions. Uh, I'm a very like single-minded individual. So my first job was freelance website making, like web, calling it web development would be generous. But basically when I was 13, I set up a fake profile on an online job board and pretended I was 30. I Googled 30-year-old man and took the first picture and just started bidding on random projects to make websites for people because I was the kid who asked for books for Christmas and I was all right at programming at the time. So unsurprising given my current job, that was my first job. I did that all through whilst I was at school and saved up enough money to go start a web development business, which subsequently I ran into the ground and then carried on doing a few other things. I think most random job I've had, when I was running my first little web development, think of that business as like Fisher-Price, my first business, right? Like running that first little kind of website development shop into the ground because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I didn't have any money. And believe it or not, I used to actually be quite fit. And I got a personal training qualification. So I'm a fully qualified personal trainer and I used to do personal training on the side to earn enough money to allow people to think I was making enough money making websites that they might employ me to make them a website. So there you go. That's your answer. <laughs> we learn more every day as our friendship continues. So. That's just, uh, honestly, it's the best. It's the best of the best. That's, honest, that's the honest truth. That is the most random job I think I've had. Yeah, I don't know if you can get, if you can get an integration for Pinpoint and maybe, you know, a virtual tong to take you through your fitness classes in the morning you don't want that i mean look we all know what i look like today right? i'm full dad bod now so i'm not sure that would be the most appropriate feature we could add to the product but yeah i uh i don't think you'll get much more diverse from sort of personal training to building hr software for a living right yeah i agree and you know i'll answer this question as well when many many years ago i come from a country town in northern ireland i discussed this with brie when she was at the airport today I worked in many factories of various different kinds. So I worked uh, in a tire factory, an egg factory, a cigarette factory, uh, which was the hardest of the jobs, shoveling tons of tobacco into machines. I've worked probably the weirdest jobs I've had have been working in, I was a bouncer, believe it or not, back in Glasgow. I know you wouldn't think from, from this again, it's frame. Um, I had long hair and a beard at the time. It was not a good look. But the weirdest job I probably had was I uh, worked in different films in security and my friend owned a, a security company and I was once Brad Pitt's bodyguard, So, which is a, a bold accolade. I don't know that that's random, but that is very, well, I mean, I suppose it is random, but it's much more cool than it is random, right? Like I've made myself look foolish. You've made yourself look incredibly cool and sophisticated during this podcast, I must say. 
I'll definitely follow this up, Tom, with the reality of the situation. Uh, <laughs> we worked in security on this. Uh, it was World War Z in Glasgow. And again, you know, Faz and the guys at um, Zion Security, phenomenal. They do all the um, movie security all over Scotland and all over the UK now. He gave us an opportunity. It was when I had just graduated and it was phenomenal to work in Hollywood movies. We were part of an external team with Brad Pitt's actual bodyguards. But when we went for dinner after, um, we were in a restaurant and a group of individuals came up to us and said, oh my goodness, are you Brad Pitt's bodyguards? And at the time being 23, of course I said yes. Literally, we're, we're best mates. It was always a talking point. It was always one of those things. And icebreakers, when you get asked the question, what's the most random thing? It's always a good one to bring up. But it took me from working in factories, working random jobs and camping shops, uh, working in bars, working in security, and, and then working in security in, in movies. I have went down a career path into talent acquisition, and, and here we are talking today. You know, I suppose it's a no career path is kind of linear at the moment. And I think, you know, people are talking about the great resignation. It's not really great. It's not, in my opinion, really a resignation. It's kind of the great kind of renegotiation and you know, beginning of a kind of a, I suppose, a, a turning of, of, of the times. It's really focusing on uh, what people want, what people need. It is this balance of, you know, you joked about, you know, fitness and, and, and things like that, but it, it is relevant, you know, it's relevant to everyone. Kids, having your kids, having a dog, these are all factors um, that buy into that overall career journey now. And, you know, people come from different backgrounds, they've got different experiences. But what we've looked at as a business from a, a macro level is, is very highly skilled people in the market. They've got specific needs. They're looking for X, Y, and Z conditions, which are now, they're not negotiable, you know, home working. They're, they're always looking for remote working. They're looking for the best kit to work on, whether it be a MacBook or whether it be the latest Microsoft product or, or something else. You know, how do you engage those people and keep them involved? As the salaries and the, the, the remuneration packages keep going up and increasing, where do you fulfill that kind of mid-market gap? And that's where looking at the academy approach, we've designed an academy to really kind of you know, Savio is an organization incredibly, incredibly ambitious. You know, our goal is to be the global leader and the go-to specialist when it comes to, in regards to digital transformation and innovation, not, you know, in the contact center, but as true CX experts. But to achieve that, we can't just keep paying the top talent more and more and more. You need to create a vehicle to enable all the quirky things that people want, spread the, the kind of the, the net a bit wider and look for alternative pathways into the sector that we're in. You know, we're the experts, we're subject matter experts. Let us teach you how to be an expert in our sector. Let's give you the tools and give you the vehicle to do that. And we believe that, you know, that the academy approach and developing it, which touches all organizations or sorry, all areas of the organization. So like so your know, service delivery, support, product development, sales, marketing. So there's something in there for everybody. Our kind of thought, and, and kind of thought leadership in this is that future proofs us going forward in regards to generating the next kind of level of talent. But selfishly, from my point of view, looking at it from talent acquisition, we're not looking external. We're not paying very high salaries. We're not paying out of the kilter of the, the benchmark data. And I think there comes a time in the business, and this is a quote I think I've said to you before, um, 
the former kind of CEO of Peloton, John Foley, said, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, and, you know, is there a right time to kind of start a global initiative and an academy to, to start that change? There's a lot of people kind of wait for the perfect moment or, you know, once we get to a certain size, once we get to a certain level, we can start developing these initiatives. But, you know, the time's now. The market's moving at pace, as we discussed. The kind of things, it's like every avalanche starts with a pebble. You can go into all the different kind of, you know, sayings. But the time's now to start these initiatives. And from my point of view, it enables people who have got skills, who not in the traditional sense, are vehicle to get them a career that is aligned to, to what they want to do in something technical or something uh, creative. But that, that's where the inclusivity comes into it because I don't know, have, have you got a degree, Tom? Did you go to university? Did, was that something that... I never even graduated GCSEs, to be honest. I'm like the least educated person you will meet most of the time. I suppose it goes right back to, you know, I'm sure when you were sitting moonlighting as a 30-year-old man developing websites, well, maybe, you know, it depends how you edit that part of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's important context you missed in that phrase, but yeah, we'll, we'll forgive you for that. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, definitely. But you know, you would have never thought that your journey would have taken you here. I suppose the academy, in my view, I want it to be the vehicle for young people, old people, all kinds in that kind of bracket that they can come, you know, come back into the world of technology innovation in a way that will give you the tools and give you the stuff to do it. But it's given them that opportunity, really. My boss always says, you know, every vacancy is an opportunity, internally and externally. So the, the kind of the start of the academy has been this concept and idea. And we've had our first kind of cohort of BDRs went through, been really successful. We've seen the kind of the internal redeployment of them moving on, um, moving on more recently. We've had our first uh, cohort of apprentices. We've had our first cohort of graduates come in and we're building on this success. And I truly believe that it is the training, mentoring, and, and the learning of those real on-the-job experiences will it'll bridge the gap between education, the world of work, and uh, society itself and, and people. So it's something uh, you know you might tell from me talking about it. I'm incredibly, incredibly passionate about it, and it's something very near and dear to what we're doing at Sabio. I love that. I think. I sort of share your passion for that early career development and creating opportunities and tracks of people. I think we've done similar things here at Pinpoint on our engineering side, uh, somewhat because our hands have been forced, right? Like, as you've talked about, the market makes it very hard to find that type of talent. I think some organizations, if they're intelligent enough, can take a very long-term view on this stuff and start training people early. It builds employer brand. It builds access to talent. And I think we've been doing that through this initiative called the Coding Program, uh, sort of training entry-level programmers for I'm going to say eight or nine years now, a long, long, long time, even predating Pinpoint as a business. And what we've seen is a a great access to a fantastic pool of entry-level people that are talented beyond their years and have a lot of value to add to the business. But also, sort of seven, eight, nine years in now, the sort of alumni network from that that have gone on to do great things and join companies and are now mid-tier or senior people even. They all know us. They all want to work with us. They all are happy to make introductions and recommendations to us. And I think we've sort of built our own sort of micro brand and micro network of very talented people. And I think that the value that's delivered for us as we scale our engineering organization is immeasurable, right? I appreciate we're talking about a very long-term timeline horizon here, but super, super, super awesome to hear you have such a clear and concise vision for that and for the value that's going to deliver to Sabio 
in the coming years. I think this is like a fantastic place to wrap up because there's a real clear takeaway there and, and like some value for people to go and deploy into their own organizations. Is there any kind of final thoughts or summary on how organizations should be thinking about rolling out their own academy? Yeah, um, you know, I suppose, I don't actually know. I think it was, I, I would say this is a, a fatherism of mine. My dad would say something like this, you know, what comes easy won't last, but what lasts won't come easy. Um, so it is hard work. It is, you know, a magnanimous effort on different leaders in the business. But, you know, the time's now, the time for people to, to you know, stick their head above the parapet and want to mentor the generations of, of the future and, and the latter generations, you know, what's to stop people coming back, retraining in, from being in a, in a career? You know, my father retired 10 years ago and he's looking for jobs at the moment to keep him busy or to keep him out. I suggest that, you know, have you ever thought about a career in software engineering? Have you ever thought about doing a coding course and being technically minded and understanding how it works? And it's within the realms of possibility now. For someone who is not a digital native to go and do that and from our point of view as talent acquisition professionals we're opening up a whole sector of the market that's relatively untapped in a very buoyant and very candidate driven market and we all want to stay competitive we all want to stay ahead of the game so it's a no-brainer Tom in my eyes. Look, I couldn't agree more. And George, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I think, look, it's been educational. It's been eye-opening. No, that's super useful for anybody listening that's looking at growing, I guess, either through acquisition, and you've talked us through how, how you've done that, some of the challenges you face, or those looking to build an academy and that sort of early-level talent pipeline and, and thinking about how they might do that well. Um, if you're interested in working with George and the great team at Sabio, go check out their great opportunities at sabiogroup.com slash careers. To everybody else, I think for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to the Talent Revolution. We've got many more great guests like George coming every other Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening and thanks again, George.